If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we are calling in your direct support to be able to continue the show and keep exploring a lot of perspectives and topics often sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value these conversations that we gift to the public, you can reciprocate support for us starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you want the references and takeaways from each episode sent to you, you can sign up to our weekly newsletter at greendreamer.com. For now, on to today's episode where we're speaking with Dr. David Border Giles. Even the most conservative economist will tell you that capitalism requires unemployment, structural unemployment, to keep inflation down. The economy is based on some people not having work. And what that means is we have a class system built into capitalism. We need some people to be a little bit hungry, a little bit desperate for work in order to keep the whole economy ticking over the way it does. David teaches at Deakin University in Melbourne and is an anthropologist of food, waste, cities, and social movements. He focuses on the relationships between economy, identity, and affect or feeling, and his writing is largely organized around three intersecting topics, the role of abject economies in global cities, globalized efforts at municipal governance, and emergent networks and counterpublics cultivated within those abject economies. For him, these are not only topics that are most interesting, but also the most pressing. We'll also be exploring the book that he wrote entitled A Mass Conspiracy to Feed People, Food Not Bombs and the World-Class Waste of Global Cities. We begin here as David shares about his interest in anthropology and how he came into the world of dumpster diving and, well, looking at food waste. I've always been the sort of person who is interested in the margins and the things that other people have kind of avoided. You know, I, as an undergraduate, living in the United States. Uh, I live in Australia now, but I lived in the United States for a long time. And as an undergraduate, I just found myself one of the people who couldn't walk past someone who was homeless and asking for money. And over the years, I had different approaches to that. I really, I came to the conclusion, as a side note, I came to the conclusion that I will just give people money because they probably need it. 
and whatever they do with it, they probably still need it more than me. And it's those sorts of moments that I think brought me to anthropology and always, you know, feeling like an odd duck myself, you know, as a, an Australian kid living in the United States for a long time, kind of feeling like I'd been away from one country for too long to call it home, but not feeling like I was at home in the country I was in, you know, that kind of third space experience. All of those things, I think, bring a lot of people to anthropology because anthropology is the, the science of understanding people in the kind of broadest way possible, which means you look in the margins, you look in, in the places where people don't fit and you don't take anything for granted about your own culture. So for people like me, that was perfect. Yeah. So I got interested in anthropology for, I think, many of the same reasons I got interested in homelessness and dumpster diving. You know, I have been interested in what gets thrown away and why and who gets thrown away, you know, or discarded or, or, or abandoned. So, you know, at some point I realised how much food was thrown away living in the United States, just watching the way people around me ate. You know? mm. I remember I was, this was insufferable to my friends, but I was in my, you know, late teens and early 20s and I'd go out to restaurants and I just wouldn't order anything. And so, you all right? And I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm not, not hungry. And inevitably someone would end up with half a meal and they wouldn't take it home. They would just be ready to throw it away. And at the last minute, I'd say, I'll take it. I'll just, I'll grab a box, which my friends thought was <laughs> insufferable. But, it, you know, just the, the juxtaposition of so much need and so much poverty and inequality in the United States and so much waste. And, and as a, you know, in my late teens and early 20s, I thought, how could you not see this? Uh, how could you not find something troubling about this? And, you know, I stopped doing that at restaurants because honestly it just rubbed my friends the wrong way too often mm -hmm. even though they were going to throw it away <laughs> so i got interested in other kinds of waste recovery just personally probably the most formative experience actually was working at a thrift store before graduate school and i worked in the back for a long time and you'd take boxes and boxes of people's donations uh you have to comb through it and decide what you could sell most of it you couldn't sell so a lot of it got recycled or thrown away. And people don't know this. They bring their like mountain of old coffee cups to the, the thrift store. We call them op shops in Australia. They bring their mountain of old coffee cups and most of them have a stain here and a chip there and they think, oh, these will be good. I, uh, I bet you, you can find a good home for these. I've loved them. And I'm sure they did love them, but you can't resell them. You know, and so in, in many ways, people use thrift stores as just a way to throw things away without the guilt of putting them in the landfill. Yeah, or even to feel good about because they might feel like donations in certain ways. Yeah, so all of that made me interested in these big cultural questions. Why do we throw these things away? Specifically, like what drives us to constantly consume and sort of to create this constant throughput through our house households? And what does that have to do with how we value things and people? And that's why I got into dumpster diving and I got into dumpster diving and anthropology at sort of roughly the same time. So it just made sense to, to write my doctoral thesis about it. Right. So we had explored the subject of food excess through different lenses on the show before, though I'm no longer sure that the word excess properly captures the full picture of what's really going on. Because when we have excess at the same time that many are facing a shortage, then something else is going on and sort of manufacturing these crises. So through your anthropological lens, how have you made sense of this contradiction of 
excess and insecurity for food, and the idea of the economic value that is assigned to food as commodities? Mm, that's really it's a great question. It, you know, it's taken a lot of thinking because you you have to understand capitalism as a system, and it's such a massive sort of complex behemoth. It just takes quite a long time to get your head around the global economy, and I, I don't think I ever will. Mm. But you know, I've, I've taken a shot at it, and so I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what are the inner logics, the inner the inner path dependencies that make capitalism tick. Because on the surface of it, it does not make sense if if you just look at it from a kind of naive set of assumptions about commerce. You you buy things, you keep stock on your shelf, you want to sell as much of it as possible. And it's only sort of zooming out and looking at it as a bit of a system and, and thinking about capitalism, not the way a lot of people think about it. You know, a lot of people have this sort of mythical assumption that capitalism is an efficient system for distributing resources, that it is a process for a, a kind of rational process by which everybody you know, people talk about the, the rational markets hypothesis. That people assume that it's a rational process by people get what by which people get what they need and prices are set appropriately and resources get distributed. And it turns out it's nothing of the sort. You know, among other things, capitalism is a system of class. It's a system for valuing some things above others and valuing some people above others, whether you're looking at wages, whether you're looking at the price of goods. And so inherently, it has to produce sort of value at the same time as it produces waste, and then it has to segregate those. So it has to manufacture scarcity in order to manufacture value. You know, you take an economics class, Economics 101, and the first thing they tell you most of the time is about scarcity and how they tell you about the seesaw of supply and demand, and the more constrained the supply the, the greater the, the price. So capitalism has to create scarcity and it does it in all sorts of ways, but it, it enforces a kind of class distinction. You know, it's what they do on an airplane. There's how many business class seats are there? How many first class seats are there? They've made a market by manufacturing a scarcity of those things and they've made a class system at the same time because only a certain number of people can afford those things. Well, they do it with food too. And we, we all participate in it. You know, if you go to the shops, you pick up, I always think of an avocado because it's one of my favourite foods and they, mm. they get a spot so easily. You pick up an avocado, you look for just the right one to go home with and you're implicitly sort of valuing all of those on a hierarchy, on a, on a kind of scale of, you know, from most preferable to least preferable avocado. And so, of course, you're consigning to some of those avocados to the, the bin and that happens on a mass scale. You know, so much food gets thrown away that's edible, not because uh, there's anything dangerous about it, but because it's just, it's been part of these value systems, these these heuristics or these processes for valuing a thing, Yeah, which might be uh, a sell-by date. Most of us know that sell-by dates don't really mean that much. You know, it's just, it, it's just a, a way to dis, uh, distinguish between what you can charge full price for and what you can't. You know, day-old bread versus fresh bread, the avocado without the spot versus the avocado with the spot. All of these ways we're creating, you know, a kind of value hierarchy so that some things can be sold at a, a premium and some things can get chucked. And we do that with people too. So there, that's 
kind of the essence of class under capitalism. Even the most conservative economist will tell you that capitalism requires unemployment, structural unemployment, to keep inflation down. The economy is based on some people not having work. And what that means is we have a class system built into capitalism. We need some people to be a little bit hungry, a little bit desperate for work in order to keep the whole economy ticking over the way it does. Mm. It's interesting when you talked about like economics 101 classes, I took one myself and it's like an introductory course, but the points that they're teaching have presumptions that underlie them that should be critiqued and questioned. And I think we often think of the economy as this dominant large-scale system of value exchange, which globally is rooted in capitalism. But that's just one facet of the story and a limiting understanding of the diverse economies that are existing simultaneously. And part of your work has been to investigate the alternate economies of people living outside traditional social structures, including homeless populations. So can you break this down for us as in going back to the basics, what even is an economy and how do we recognize its different forms, especially in more marginal and liminal spaces? You know, I think it's it's fascinating that by and large, we didn't talk about the economy until the 20th century. People talked about economy, you know, and if you think about literally the word economy, you know, it just refers to kind of the management of things. It comes from the word oikos, which is Greek for household. So economy was originally just sort of the management of resources in a household. And an economy, the way we use it now, an economy is just any system for distributing wealth, resources, labor, and basically value. It's any system for valuing things and distributing them. So one of the things I've always loved about anthropology uh, is that we look at all different kinds of economy. You know, so many societies throughout history and still have been based on gift economy rather than market economy. You know, and if you do, you know, Christmas presents or if you do Halloween or, or any of these kind of mass systems where you're kind of obliged to give some things and if you participate, you're also obliged to get some things. Those are gift economies and whole societies have been based on these kind of bonds of reciprocity, you know, unlike a market economy, which is also a system for distributing things, but it's based on transactions where you buy and sell a thing. So there are all sorts of economies and, and they all have these kind of their own internal contradictions, their own internal foibles. And the idea that what we call the economy is the only economy is a kind of myth. It's a kind of ideology, really, that says the market is all one internally consistent thing. It's separate from the rest of society, you know, and we are at its mercy. We need to constantly encourage it to grow, all of those sorts of things that you're in the, the nightly news and out of the mouths of politicians. But really, we, we live in many, many different economies all at once. You know, if you participate in uh, Halloween, there's a small microcosm of a gift economy every, every October. Uh, people probably haven't done that <laughs> for the last couple of years. But some economies are based on financial transactions. Some economies are based on bonds of reciprocity where you you put some work in or you put some resources in, you get some out. Some of them are just based on generosity. You know, so the economy of 
child rearing, for example, is based on a lot of work that's not paid. It's not market-based in that way. You know, no one really gets paid. Certainly they don't get paid enough to have children. That's an economy of generosity, you know, and even, you know, there's this idea that maybe your kids will look after you when you get old. That's a kind of gift economy. But honestly, if you worked and worked and worked and saved and saved and saved, you would probably be, your retirement would be more assured than if you relied on your kids to do it for you. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, it is not a profitable process. And yet everything about our society depends on people to continue to put work and labour in to making children. So that's a kind of gift economy, or maybe it's even a kind of economy of generosity that a whole society depends on that we can't see if we think that, quote unquote, the economy is a single thing and it's all you know, measured in dollars and cents. Yeah. I'm coming to realize that I don't love the word free because people typically mm-hmm. use that word to mean that it, it hasn't been assigned an economic value. But when people use the word free, it tends to undervalue the other forms of value that come from this gift that could enhance relationships that can't be reduced into like a monetary value. And I'm not sure how deeply you've looked into this because it's going to be different in every city and country. But I'm curious to think about how certain laws have been set up to strengthen and protect the dominant economic system, which again, both manufactures scarcity and excess, and how it might even render illegal or suppress or act as a barrier against these alternate economies that may be more efficient and that are trying to take hold and assert themselves. Absolutely. Well, so again, that's I, I, your questions are fantastic. Thank you. So the book that I've written, a a large part of it is about those ways in which economies of generosity are undermined one way or another. And again, think think of Halloween, you know, that there are all sorts of ways in which people are afraid of sharing things with each other. So you can now, people are afraid of getting sued if they hand out the wrong Halloween candy, I don't know. You know, so the, the law and the state intercedes exactly as you say to kind of marginalise certain kinds of economies. The thing that I've written about is the way in which often it's illegal to share food in public spaces. And they do it in a a whole range of ways. Sometimes it's just flat out illegal and you can get fined. So in San Francisco between 1988 and 1992, over a thousand people were arrested just for giving food out in public. That's mostly targeted at keeping people apart, right? That like those laws are People don't come out and say this, but the real politic of it uh, is that those laws are to keep homeless folks away from places where non-homeless folks might congregate, you know, so they're, they're to kind of stop homeless people congregating in public spaces because, they, you know, cities get all sorts of complaints and it's bad for business, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that they're targeted at these moments when people give food to each other kind of tells us something about the way that capitalism relies on dissuading us from valuing things in this kind of more generous, more more humane way. These laws and policies are sort of all over the country. Increasingly, they're all over all over the world. And the other thing they do, aside from keeping people apart, is they keep resources from circulating in public, except through transactions. So, you know, I was involved in this group, Food Not Bombs, for six years in Seattle, and we would take food that would have been thrown away cook it, hand it out to people who would have gone hungry. Dead simple. 
and you know periodically the city, city would come in you know the, the police would come and tell us we couldn't do it we'd have periods of weeks or months when the police would just keep coming back and trying to kick us out of the park and the police were just enforcing the law and the law was that they don't allow the free circulation of this excess anywhere except church basements and and other sort of homeless shelters and indoor places so this kind of the excess and the economy of generosity that you can make with it is by law constrained to these kind of shadowy marginal spaces church basements homeless shelters and uh, and the only place where you can share outdoors was under the freeway outside the ride free zone pretty stiff uphill walk from a number of the shelters and above all where people couldn't see it so that's just one example you know that think about all the ways in which we keep need and excess apart from each other you know we throw away in the united states billions of pounds of food unspoiled food every year and millions of households go hungry uh, same thing with squatting you know there's a whole economy of squatting that's possible or that would be possible if we weren't so attached to private property yeah and instead the economy relies on private property so you get millions of people probably hundreds of millions of people across the united states go homeless in any given year it's re- it's really hard to count them but by some measures it might be one out of every 100 americans is uh is homeless at some point in the year hmm. what i've been thinking about is that we often get stuck in arguing over the how or the what without realizing that many of us actually hold fundamentally different views of our human nature that then guide our politics. And those views are at the heart of shaping and justifying different sorts of economic systems and social structures as well. So what are your thoughts on the underlying presumptions about humankind that undergirds our dominant market economy and how it must work? And how do some of these alternate economies that you spoke to push against those mainstream narratives of who we are as people and therefore how we must organize ourselves to most quote unquote efficiently meet all of our different needs. Mm. Oh, I like you I really appreciate your questions. <laughs> I, I, so in teaching anthropology classes, one of the first things uh, that comes out of anyone's mouth is human nature. At some point within the first class or two, and you realize how much of the world we feel like we need to explain by or we are taught that we need to explain by making some fundamental assumption about who we are as humans, what our capacities are. And those assumptions are always reductive. And just as you're sort of suggesting there, the way our economy works is based on these assumptions that we are, these assumptions that we look look very much like little widgets in an economist's model, you know, these kind of self-interested, like fundamentally self-interested beings who are, you know, weighing up our possibilities in this kind of rational way in order to get the most goods. And so much of our politics also comes down to a similar assumption that there's this idea that behind the thin veil of culture, it's the law of the jungle, really. And, you know, like apocalypse fiction is all about reproducing this myth. You know, the, the first two seasons of the, War- of the Walking Dead, I thought were a really interesting thought experiment. And then after that, it just turns into a kind of grueling libertarian fantasy about the law of the jungle, right? You peel back this veneer of shopping malls and tax collectors and hospitals and and what will people do? Well, they'll 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 turn brutal and they'll all have to kind of 
compete for scarce resources. So it's the scarcity myth. This scarcity myth suggests that fundamentally we all are obliged to be self-interested and that life is nasty British and short without something to kind of hold us all in fear of it. And, of course, that's not a description of life in the actual wild. Life in the actual wild is much more complicated than that. And life in the actual wild is a mix of competition and, and cooperation. You know, what that, what that myth really looks like is it looks like contemporary capitalism. You know, that myth is a kind of cartoonish, overblown description of what we do under these conditions of manufactured scarcity. And, and that, you know, the scarcity myth is everywhere. I think about the, the way the scarcity myth leads people to care about each other. You know, the, there's this... There's this story that we tell the children that, you know, you need to find your one true love. And if you find your one true love, then you're incredibly lucky. And if they get away, then, you know, for whatever reason, if they get away, then there won't be more love. And this story does incredible damage to people. You know, it makes people jealous. It makes people stay in relationships they, uh, they're not happy in. And it's all un- totally unnecessary, mm. you know. You know, we could we could live in these kind of economies of generosity. I, you know, there's a there's a book which is called The Ethical Slut, which talks about what it might be like to live in a non-monogamous society. And plenty of societies have been non-monogamous. And they say at the beginning of the book that love is a renewable resource. Mm. But we're taught that it's scarce. We're taught that you only have so much love uh, and you you mustn't share it too too thinly. And if you do, you'll lose somehow. So this the scarcity myth drives so many things about our, our society and makes them look like a market. You know, it makes them behave like a market in which people have to kind of compete with each other. And it's all founded on that notion of that particular kind of mythos of human nature, which goes back to people like, you know, Thomas Hobbes. You know, Thomas Hobbes is the... Uh, the old political philosopher who was famous for saying that life is nasty, brutish, and short, and that in a in a state of nature, everyone is at war with everybody else, and that's why we need capitalism and and the state to kind of to help us uh, or to force us to be nice to each other. So I always tell my students when they uh, when they crop up with the the term human nature, I encourage them to replace it with human potential, because we don't just have one nature; we have a sort of infinite range of potentials you know biologically built into us our possibilities are far greater than our quote-unquote nasty british human nature yeah i love that reframing of looking to our human potential and you kind of touched on this but in the spirit of recognizing the diverse forms of economies that exist today within and alongside of the dominant fabricated system which in my mind, has been sort of layered on top of reality in a superficial manner that separates economy from ecology. Have you thought about this idea of an economic system as it is self-organized and practiced by our more than human communities? Like, is there even a concept of value and economy to recognize there in a sort of undefined and ever-evolving way that has been able to work itself out? I would like us to come up with more of an answer to that than we currently have. Mm. You know, the anthropologist Anna Singh talks about there being these latent commons sort of lying around that are these multi-species relationships 
you know, because we obviously we live in we live in constant communion with the non-human world, and this, you know, we've kind of been often we've been taught not to not to see that, but it doesn't mean we're not constantly relying on it. And you know, so the anthropologist Dennis Singh writes about mushroom foraging as a as a kind of small small more than human gift economy, right? And and she talks about foraging in general as a kind of gift economy between the human and the non-human. You know, if you forage for mushrooms uh, or all these kind of urban, not just urban, but, you know, if you forage for mush- mushrooms or blackberries, all of these kind of contemporary foraging economies, it relies on these non-human species to kind of gift themselves to you. And they rely on, you know, mushrooms are a great example in Anna Singh's book. They rely on humans to kind of gift them a, a landscape in which they can grow. And mushrooms are great at growing in in kind of damaged landscapes. They're, they're one of the species that kind of recover the landscape. So there's this, she talks about this kind of latent commons where we don't necessarily recognise it, but there are resources there and they circulate and they keep us all alive. I mean, I, I think about the dumpsters as also a kind of latent commons there are lots of people out there dumpster diving who don't necessarily think about themselves as part of an economy, but they they subsist. Uh, and then there are groups like Food Not Bombs that recover food that would have been wasted, whether by dumpstering or donation, and they hand it out to people who would have gone hungry. And so all of that together acts as a kind of commons. And we don't necessarily see it as such because we have the goggles of the market on. You know, So all we can see is waste. We don't see what afterlives that waste might go on to to create and we don't see how those afterlives might kind of weave together into some you know into some sort of mutually supportive system i think what this invites me to consider is that when we take on a more holistic view of an economy what we understand to be value becomes more relational and relative because everybody's needs are different. And so things are going to be of different value to different people based on their needs. And it kind of requires us to take on a more holistic understanding of value and resources and the economy to be able to recognize this less definable form of value, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes that makes such good sense. Yeah, I mean... You've you've said it. You know the. Um, I feel like you keep preempting the things that I would like to say <laughs> and saying them uh, in a kind of clearer, more distilled way. So thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> I try. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it requires us to think about what would value be if it wasn't about supply and demand. What would value be if it didn't depend on dollars and cents? You know, the the phrase that I haven't used yet today, which I think is crucial to use, is mutual aid. You know, so many look. Societies would not be able to function if they if people weren't looking after each other, and even you know capitalist societies wouldn't be able to function if the people who don't win at capitalism weren't being looked after somehow. You know we'd have bodies piling up in the street. I mean we do have bodies piling up in the street to some extent, but it would be yeah, but it would be worse if there weren't these systems for people to look after each other. So. You know, mutual aid is a way of valuing things and people differently, valuing things and people according to need in, in a kind of humane way. 
you know, the, the Food Not Bombs, the group that I was involved in for six years in Seattle, is a mutual aid project. And people put the work in, uh, not because it's going to profit them, but they put the work in because somebody else needs the food. And then later on that somebody else might put the work in and pay it forward. You know, it's a whole minor economy of mutual aid where value is about human need and human well-being rather than rather than gross domestic product. Yeah. I'm always keen on finding the common threads between issues that are typically looked at separately to try to find patterns and how they might even share their roots. And I know you've explored the idea of land excess alongside of food access, which may surprise people because land feels like it's so much more valuable that it may be shocking to think of land as being discarded in a similar way that food has been. So can you help mm-hmm. us understand the similarities here and what they might tell us about, again, the idea of exchange value versus other forms of value? It's a great point. You know, I, I, think, I think about food and housing insecurity as fairly parallel situations, actually. You know, the, here in Melbourne... Uh, across Greater Melbourne, there are anywhere from sixty to eighty thousand vacant properties in an, in a given year, and there are anywhere from twenty to thirty thousand people homeless across the whole state. We've got more vacant structures than we have people who need uh, who need shelter, and the same thing's true in the US. You know, again, the numbers are really hard to measure, but by a conservative estimate in the US, there might be sort of five or six empty homes for every person who's homeless. So, you know, it's our commitment to private property and our commitment to the dollars and cents value of a commodity that keeps it out of the hands of people who need it. And that, you know, it works a little bit differently for land than it does for food because you can't throw land away. But there's, there are parallels, you know, in, with manufactured scarcity in food systems, well, by throwing a lot of food away, you're constraining supply, keeps the price up. So you're sort of adding value to the things left on the shelf by throwing things away. That's partly what happens when you when you warehouse an old property, when you keep things off the market. So gentrifiers and developers do this in a way when they they look at a, a neighborhood as kind of up and coming. And so they'll keep properties off the market in anticipation of higher value later. You know, it might be a poorer working class neighborhood. It's in the process of gentrifying. So someone might just, you know, maybe maybe they'll evict their tenant and try and rezone it so that they can charge more for it. Or maybe they just won't rent it out for a few years because they know that in a few years they can dole it up and they, they can rent it out or sell it for more then. I mean, it, there's something fundamentally similar there about keeping things off the market in order to add value. Right. It's that relationship, again, between scarcity and value. And I know that Mm -hmm. land can't be salvaged and given away for free in the same way that discarded food can. But in terms of addressing food insecurity, is it a good thing that supermarkets are throwing away imperfect produce and soon-to-expire perishables so that there is an excess to reach alternative economies currently reliant on that surplus right now? rather than, say, putting a discounted price on it, which may still make it out of reach for people who can't even afford the discounted rates. So like, ideally, we can create the conditions to not even allow anyone to fall through the cracks. But given our current mm-hmm. situation, do we need that surplus food with their exchange value removed 
so that it can reach people who've been outcasted from or have chosen to divest from the dominant system through salvaging the excess? Mm, that's, a, that's a good question and a tricky one. And I don't think I can give you a yes or no, like which is better. I can't, you know, I can only sort of sketch out what the implications are. And, and you're absolutely right. At the moment, that food that's becoming obsolete at, at the supermarket, it's often going on to live an afterlife. If it's going to go on to live an afterlife and if people are going to have to rely on waste in order to eat, then it's nice if people can access it directly themselves and if people can exercise a bit of agency about that. You know, I'm not sure, this is not an answer to your question. but Yeah, it's, it's okay. We love the nuance. So <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one thing that has been happening increasingly in, you know, the last 10 or 15 years uh, is... and kind of ramping up since the global financial crisis is that there's been a real push to sort of recover as much of that food as possible through food charities like in the in the united states where in in around seattle it's northwest harvest Uh, in france there's a law that forces supermarkets to donate their excess rather than bin it that sort of thing and then that on the one hand it means that that food's going to get eaten. It means that, means that that food is available. On the other hand, it means that it goes through these kind of formal organisations that segregate it. You know, they, they segregate it in, like I was saying earlier, church basements and uh, soup kitchens. And so while I have a lot of respect for the people who do that charity work, it, it serves a function of segregating people when, you know, you can imagine a world in which that food was just available for people to pick through and maybe they would have maybe they'd have more agency and more be able to kind of have more direct control over their diets. So there, there's something at stake in how we distribute the waste. Now, a lot of it still goes to the, the landfill. And I think it's the more of it gets eaten, the better compared to just sending it to the landfill. But I would like to think we can imagine a society where people don't have to rely on excesses and cast-offs to eat. I'd like to think we can imagine a world in which people have an income <laughs> and yeah. can afford can afford to get their food or people can grow and produce their own food without relying on charity. So there's no easy answer to that. You know, the, it just requires us to be thinking in whole systems. And when we're thinking in terms of whole systems, well, if it, the best answer I can give to you your original question, you know, what's better? When we're thinking about whole systems, I think by any means necessary. So if there are strategies for keeping more food on the market at more affordable prices, well, that's one useful strategy, more power to them. You know, the like the ugly produce delivery system in, uh, I think it's in California, you can order, you know, a box of ugly produce and it's a bit cheaper and then you get produce delivered to your door. More power to them. I've heard them criticised because they're basically stealing food from the emergency food sector and I don't know about that you know I'd have to look at the numbers but there's a lot of food that gets wasted and I feel like the emergency food sector is is actually quite well stocked Mm. it's not that there's not enough food to go into the emergency food sector it might be other reasons you know it might be funding might be government grants it might be the supply chain I think at the moment it makes sense to cultivate as many alternatives as possible. And, you know, in the long run, if we're going to rely on the market to give people food, I think we need to cultivate a society where people can afford to eat. You know, food stamps are one of the one of the few remaining parts of the safety net 
that haven't been totally decimated. And of course, there's effort to wind that back and there are all sorts of increasing constraints on how people can access food stamps because, you know, under the kind of conservative ideology, people should either pull their boot, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps or die. <laughs> so mm. if people had access to adequate food stamps, then they could just buy the things that they need. You know, if we had a universal basic income, imagine that. If we had a universal basic income, people could buy the things they need. And so they would have they would have a right to survival rather than relying on charity to kind of dole it out voluntarily. Yeah. I mean, in, that, that's, in the long run, that's something I think that that's a kind of, that's an ideal we should keep our eyes on rather than worrying about where capitalism's cast-offs go. Right. So maybe in the immediate term, it's important to pursue all methods that we can of ensuring that people can meet their basic needs of survival. But in the long term, we have to get to the heart of why these issues even be, even um, have been created to begin with so we can mm-hmm. render those problems hopefully obsolete. And Food Not Bombs, which you've been involved with, is premised on this question, when a billion people go hungry each day, how can we spend another dollar on war? And what has stood out to me is that Food Not Bombs doesn't operate like a traditional organization, and it even says that it is not a charity. And it kind of reminds me of my recent conversation with Dr. Tyson Yunkaporta, who I think is a colleague of yours at Deakin University. Um, yeah, really appreciated my conversation with him. But he shared his views on the success of the Occupy movement and how it was decentralized. And it also reminds me of my conversation with Karen Washington, who talked about how food aid doesn't address the source of the problem and might even perpetuate the same power dynamics. So could you just speak more to how Food Not Bombs is operating in a way that is deeply counterculture and in support of, as you say, a global plot to give things away, a conspiracy (laughs) of abundance? Um, Absolutely. While I have an enormous amount of respect for the work and the effort that people put in in some of these kind of formal food charities, they have to play according to the rules of capitalism. They have to play according to the rules of the local power structure. And so they have to they have to discipline the people that they serve in a way. You know, they're they're part of the process of keeping capitalism's cast-offs out of view. You know, there's a there's a group in Seattle which I have enormous respect for, called Operation Sack Lunch. And they historically have run the outdoor meal program. And so they get donations, they get the support of the city, they have this one place where they're allowed to share food, before the pandemic anyway, they've had to go indoors since then. But they had this one place where they're allowed to share food. And because of that, they can serve, you know, millions of meals in a year. They can reach more people than Food Not Bombs can reach. And the compromise that they have to make in order to do that is they have to follow the rules. They can only serve under the freeway, outside the ride-free zone, away from the shelters where no one can see them. And that's just one example of all of the ways in which the kind of non-profit industrial complex has to act like an extension of the capitalist economy and has to act like an extension of the state and do what they're told. And, you know, I respect the people who think that that's a necessary compromise, but it it's this kind of disciplining force on the people that they're serving. It, and in, in all sorts of ways, you know, shelters are obliged to make people 
some some shelters are obliged to make people go through this whole routine that makes them feel like prisoners, you know. So the, there are all sorts of ways in which charity and these forms of help don't necessarily always help. And then you take something like food, not bombs, uh, which is a, you know, kind of a, a messier, slightly more chaotic voluntary association of people who are all doing mutual aid. They're looking out for themselves. They're looking out for other people. And they don't follow any of those rules. I mean, most obviously Food Not Bombs shares food in places where they're technically not supposed to. They're public parks, you know, sidewalks, places that theoretically should belong to the public but which are sort of tightly controlled. Uh, And Food Not Bombs doesn't have to be disciplined in the way that these other charities have to be disciplined. And they don't have to answer to anyone's bottom line and they don't have to present themselves to potential donors and philanthropies. You know, they don't have to make their case to the Gates Foundation. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to adjust their worldview and adjust their commitments in order to get money from the Gates Foundation or whoever it might be. But there's a profound difference between that kind of project and the thing that's called charity. Yeah. So basically, because it isn't formalized nor centralized, it's able to operate in this sort of way at the fringes mm-hmm. without yeah. following the rules. <laughs> Yep, yep. And where does change come from? The fringes, you know? Yeah. Food Not Bombs has a – I often think about the the diggers, the, the diggers who were this group in the 1600s uh, in England, who just a ragtag bunch of people who who saw that common land was being fenced off and, uh, you know, at the very beginnings of capitalism, saw that common land was being fenced off uh, and taken away from the common people, and they occupied it. It was one of the very early sort of Occupy movements – and no one took them seriously at the time. They got on this land, they sang some songs, they had a protest, they got kicked off. The end, everybody thought. But the diggers were where the idea for universal suffrage came from. No one necessarily took them seriously, but they envisioned a profoundly different society. And some of their ideas came to pass. You know, a few hundred years later, men with property got the right to vote. You know, some generations after that, white women got the right to vote. And, and on and on, you know. So, so yeah, change comes from the margins and these kind of ragtag, ragtag, slightly chaotic uh, spaces along the side of capitalism incubate new ideas and they incubate change. Yeah. And so it's one of the reasons I really liked this notion of the latent commons from Anna Singh, you know, these, these different resources come together, you know. Food Not Bombs is only possible because there's food getting thrown away on the one hand. It's only necessary because there are people going hungry, on the other hand. You know, in the places where people cook, you know, we we rarely ever had a stable formal kitchen space. We certainly could never afford to pay rent for one. And so we ended up relying on squats and kind of low-rent collective houses in kind of overlooked parts of the city. And and the people who get involved in cooking for food, not bombs, it's, it's a really kind of beautiful chaotic mix of people who are all alienated from the market and alienated from their kind of dominant society's norms one way or another. So it all comes together because in some way they've all been excluded. You know, and I include myself in that, you know, from like I was saying to begin with, I've always identified more with the people who uh, are a little bit on the outs with society. All of those things come together because they've been excluded and it's possible to bring bring them together in a new way because they've been excluded. You know, the instant Food Not Bombs had to start asking for grant money 
it would have this kind of whole effect on the on the way people do things. With all of this in mind, knowing the power of building a decentralized and self-organized movement that isn't prescriptive nor top-down, how do you think the broader social and climate justice movements can learn from Food Not Bombs? Because I think we have a tendency to want to turn to some powerful voice or centralized and established organization to tell us what to do, because there's maybe a sort of comfort in that. But as history shows, these centralized organizations more often than not become either co-opted or end up capitulating to existing establishments and therefore upholding the status quo. So what do you think our listeners can take away from understanding the success of this movement of Food Not Bombs? Mm -hmm. These are such good questions. Thank you. (laughs) Food Not Bombs has really helped me to have a bit more trust and faith in change over the long haul. When I was 26 and kind of first getting involved in Food Not Bombs, after the first year, I was really disillusioned. You know, I felt like we were going out, just scrambling to get enough people and food together to go out and do a meal. And every week I thought that maybe it wasn't going to happen because, you know, it takes a, a lot of work to get the, um, the food together. You're not sure what you're going to get every week. You're not sure who's going to show up every week. Yeah, I remember being really disillusioned. You know, meanwhile, capitalism kept on and I just couldn't imagine how this chaotic, almost desperate struggle, weekly struggle, could stack up in the face of capitalism. And it felt very much like a sort of David and Goliath experience. And then after six years, lo and behold, it kept on every week. And, you know, people came and went and the resources were different every week. And we, we missed a few weeks. But in six years, I think that, that's just in the six years that I did it, we missed maybe, you know, three or four kitchens. It really helped me believe in the kind of long-term sustainability. Uh, not sustainability is the wrong word, perhaps. Sustainability is one of those words that, that's been kind of co-opted. But, you know, the long-term temerity mm. of a scrappy bunch of people over time. And then, yeah, and this is one of the things I'm most grateful for about having written the book because the book allowed me to to talk to people and interview people from all across Food Not Bombs, across generations. And Food Not Bombs has that temerity across time and space too since, you know, the 80s. The movement has only kind of grown and it's still around. It's no less desperate and scrappy and uncertain from week to week and yet in the long haul from month to month and year to year, it's absolutely reliable. And, you know, it's not necessarily visible in the way that something like Occupy Wall Street was visible, but there would have been no Occupy Wall Street without smaller, scrappier, less visible threads like Food Not Bombs that sort of carried on over time in the less visible moments. And so when something like Occupy Wall Street happens, all of these threads are woven together very quickly because there are people who know how to run a field kitchen. There are people who've been doing books to prisoners for years and they can they can put the, the book tent together overnight. There are people who've been uh, you know, there are Quakers and anarchists who've been practicing consensus in their house meetings or whatever for years, and they can get together and run a, a large consensus-based meeting. So all of these little scrappy threads, like food, not bombs, I have learned to trust in their temerity and their longevity. And so when a larger movement comes along, like the climate movement, they can learn some of those lessons about how to do things by consensus, about how to trust in 
the diversity of tactics and the diversity of groups coming together. Uh, there are these moments like the alternative globalization movement from the late 90s and early 2000s or Occupy Wall Street that were these kind of chaotic but really effective concentrations of lots of diverse people with diverse interests. And those kind of prove that, that such a thing is possible and impactful. But they do that in this kind of concentrated way at key moments and then they come apart. Food Not Bombs teaches us, I think, that people can carry that on in less visible ways over time in their own communities. And I think that matters. What's an impactful publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? You know, the book I mentioned earlier, Anna Singh's The Mushroom at the End of the World, is my favorite uh, recent anthropology book. It's the kind of thing that anthropologists and non-anthropologists alike can read and enjoy. And it's just kind of about the, uh, the way different parts of the economy, different people, different species can all come together in unexpected ways to change the future. What are some of your personal mottos, mantras, or practices that keep you grounded? I don't necessarily believe in progress, but I believe in change. And not only do I believe in change, I think change is the only constant. Yeah, so while I, I'm never sure what the future holds, I know that it, it will be otherwise. Mm. And what are some of your biggest sources of inspiration at the moment? There's an author whose work I like, Quinn Norton, who says that we're taught to think that in the middle of the apocalypse, people will eat each other, but in fact, they feed each other. And over the last 18 months, as the pandemic's kind of pushed on, we've seen the full spectrum of human possibility. And one of the things we've seen is the growth of these mutual aid movements, people just buckling down and helping each other. Yeah. Again, going back to really shining a light on our human potential well, we are coming to a close, but to our listener, if you want to learn more and stay updated on David's work and his book, A Mass Conspiracy to Feed People, you can head to his website at dhbordergiles.wordpress.com, and you can also follow him on Twitter at dhbordergiles. David, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Really appreciated this conversation. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I, you know, I'm not sure that I have any words of wisdom. I, I know what I needed to hear when I was 26, which is keep it up. It matters. Change is not only possible, it's the only constant in the world. And uh, there are more people out there helping than you might be able to see right now. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive 
of conversations can reach and move more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Allergic by Lil Idli. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 